You are listening to the GCU Law Podcast. In this episode, we talk to author and activist Gemma Neville about her book, Constitution Street, Law and Human Rights in a Post-Pandemic World, the importance of literature in building empathy, and some advice for law students. This episode is funded by the Scottish Book Trust, and thank you for listening. So good afternoon and welcome to our GCU Law podcast. My name is Sinead Stevenson-McCabe and I'm a solicitor and lecturer at GCU. So today I'm here with our new 2020 Law Clinic student director, Lucy Mackay, and Gemma Neville, the author of the wonderful book, Constitution Street, which we're here to talk about today. So let me hand over to you, Lucy, and thank you very much, Gemma, for joining us today. Thanks Sinead. Yes, so I'll just quickly for those listening who haven't had a chance to read Gemma's book yet. Constitution Street is, as described by the blurb, part memoir, part social history and a call to action. Written in the wake of the 2014 and 2016 referendums, Gemma talks to her neighbours on Constitution Street Leith. In an attempt to take the sometimes unattainable language of Constitution away from lawyers and politicians and into the hands of people, Gemma asks her neighbours what they would like to see in a constitution, what human rights means to them and how they would like to see them implemented. In the chapters, which are each dedicated to dealing with a specific human right, Gemma intertwines the stories that emerge from the people of Constitution Street among stories of many others, past and present, including her own, painting a picture of Constitution Street with all its highlights and issues alike. It is the perfect mix of political and personal from every perspective, historical and contemporary, international and local, touching on a range of issues that face a modern Scotland, each is dealt with in the non-judgmental, empathetic tone that runs throughout the book. It is funny, nostalgic, and most of all, incredibly thought-provoking, leaving you with a strong feeling of hope that despite living in increasingly uncertain times, everything will be okay as long as we keep talking to each other and sharing our stories. It is certainly the call to action that it claims to be. So, on that note, hello Gemma, thank you so much, as Sinead said, for joining us today. We're so excited to talk to you. Um, as you can probably tell from that, I absolutely love the book. I know Sinead did as well. Um, <laughs> it's such a pleasure to be in conversation with you. Thanks for having me and oh, for that um, great introduction. Lucky me. <laughs> I keep finding myself watching the news over these past few crazy months and relating it to one of the sections in the book. I think that was my favourite thing about how contemporary it was. It was so refreshing to read something like that. I don't think there's much out there at the moment that is so discusses everything in such a perfect way. But anyway, I can stop gushing now. Sorry. That's really interesting and quite reassuring to hear because, of course, you research and write in a moment in time um, and lives in in the particular and the universal all all move on and and so i'm really pleased that you think that um there's 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 resonance definitely definitely. from when the book was written despite the world being on fire in 2020 (laughs) so if you don't mind i'd like to just start off if you could tell us a bit about yourself your career journey your connection to law and how that then ended up with you writing constitution street sure so like yourselves um i'm a former law student and um an activist at heart, I, I suppose. Um, I, I, I didn't have a, a grand plan um, c- career-wise. I think few people, if they're honest, ever ever do. Um, 
you know um you're lucky if opportunities come your way and 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 aside that it's it's hard hard graft um and trying to be nice to people along the way so i studied law at edinburgh um i did my llb there i was very fortunate to get an erasmus year in sweden when um of course we were still doing the erasmus program and um i think uh, a year abroad really opened up my eyes and mind to um to international human rights law and european law and then when i came back to edinburgh um it didn't feel like the moment for me anyway to, to pursue private legal practice also that time um early 2000s coincided with the iraq war with the make poverty history demonstrations protest against nuclear weapons in the Clyde so that's sort of that's where i was earning my activist teeth and um i i took the opportunity to do an internship with the united nations icty the yugoslav tribunal as then was again hugely fortunate to get supported to do that i think my generation had a lot of opportunities that perhaps aren't available today and we we're, we're often very young um if we're first time students in Scotland and i think it's really great to to go out and get some experience in the world you know and then and then apply that learning home when you get back so so I, and i actually applied to be in the office of the prosecutor at the ICTY i didn't get into that and that was a really good thing because i got to spend the best part of a year working on one case in a trial chamber instead so that was direct court experience at a young age um and really embedded in one place um a particular area of 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 bosnia where the case um concerned and i think that sort of helped me grow up a lot learn lots but also sparked a real interest in the, how the law was or wasn't communicated with the people it exists to serve and i would see um witnesses often victims who weren't i at that time didn't seem to me particularly in aware of 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 how their testimony was or wasn't being used and and i think things have improved hugely since then other um international mechanisms that have come since particularly a special court for Sierra Leone um picked up a lot on communication and outreach work anyway uh, that that really stuck with me and that experience and so um it sent me off in the direction of uh human rights in a very interdisciplinary way beyond the law also how um human rights field work um has application in economics and ecology and education and the creative arts so i did a postgrad at something called the european inter university center which is in in venice in italy no great hardship to to be there um and came home to scotland at the time that the scottish human rights commission was being set up um it been established by by the scottish parliament and so the huge privilege of of being there the first member of staff um and and then joined by a small team where we were all terribly conscientious and um and, and determined and learned lots hopefully and did our best and and made made an impact made a difference and then from that point what made you want to write constitution street so i've always i've always written um i, I wouldn't let's say I call myself a writer um but I I've always written and I think we we 
We lived through such um, an exciting political time um, in Scotland, Definitely. didn't we? In um, the, the independence referendum, whatever your political views were, it, it was a time of, of great self-expression and about imagining the future. So, so that really awakened me to, 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 the, to the power of the written word and of narrative as, as agency, um, that if you don't write your own story, it will get written for you. And I, I, having, having spent a number of years at the, at the Human Rights Commission, I then made a, a move into creative arts, where, and, and I lead an arts charity, which might not have seen an obvious move at the time, but for me it made perfect sense because in, in Scotland, particularly with the progressive steps we've been making in public policy terms around Burn freedom of information and on integrating human rights, not just into health and social care, but into all aspects of national and local government. Creative expression very much allows us to make sense of difference, you know, and to see and understand ourselves and one another in the world. So I wanted to get involved in that at a time when Scotland felt like it was riding a confidence wave creatively. And then um, it felt like time that I, I walked the talk and made time for my own creative practice. I'd been living on, on the street called Constitution Street for close to a decade before the, the obvious thing in the name struck me that hang on a minute, not only is this a, a really vibrant, messy and so interesting part of, of Leith and Edinburgh, it's also got, it's got huge historical significance in the name. And I think because it geographically boundaries um, the city and the sea, yeah. this is reclaimed land from the sea, we're, we're in a very liminal space and I'm interested in that liminal energy and what it means to be in between times and places. Yeah. I think it's really interesting hearing you talk about the the narrative of, of your own career journey from you know the Human Rights Commission and in that link with, with arts, particularly as you talk about you know, the work with the ICTY and I know that that was, so I previously worked at the International Criminal Court and arts are very much something in these new legal systems that they were keen to explore as means of engaging with communities, particularly when you're dealing with courts that are quite remote from those communities and how do you engage in different forms of of lawyering how, how do you do lawyering differently and I think that's it's so interesting to hear you talk about that move and and why that made sense for you it actually probably leads us really nicely into the the part of Constitution Street that we'd ask you to read for us if you if you wanted to I think when Lucy and I were talking about you know, what section we would potentially ask you to read, well, I mean, it was quite hard to narrow down because we basically yeah. <laughs> started at page one and said, that would be great, that would be great, and got all the way to page 200 and something and said, okay, well, unless it's going to be a seven-hour podcast, an audio book. Nobody wants that. It's an hour of me. <laughs> quite enough. But I think this section really struck us in... And, and when, when you read from it, I, I hope the listeners feel this as well, because it does marry those big ideas about what it means to do lawyering differently and how, how we should think about the rights that we see in constitutional documents and in these big treaties and, and tomes, how we think about them in a very practical way and how that comes through in, in our lived experiences of friends who are art therapists and all of that kind of work I think is very very interesting it makes rights very real good now would be a good, good. point for you to 
Yes, for sure. Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know something as well? Just remarking how many uh, law grads um, and students, as, as well, come from a background of really enjoying English and history and written okay. word, um, but that that side of things often gets quashed when you've got a lot just just facts yeah, and yeah, to remember isn't it and 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 I'd love to hear more Sinead about your experience at um, International Criminal Court I, th- I think previously we, we called these rules outreach didn't we mm-hmm. and until quite mm-hmm. recently as well in, in Scotland but um but now it might be it might be just communication or yeah. um connection or something because yeah. um there's something a bit patriarchal isn't there about going out yeah. um, from the centres yeah. of power uh, right, digress. So, so we were going to have a reading from the chapter called The Making of Us, which is about the right to freedom of expression. The Making of Us. What relevance has singing, poetry and drawing in the serious matter of drafting a written constitution? My friend Simon is an art therapist and when trying to convince NHS ma- managers of the need for continued investment in therapeutic practice, He sat the managers down in a group and asked each to draw a picture of their family home using coloured pencils and pens. The men and women in suits set about enthusiastically sketching the recognisable rectangles and triangles of a classic house shape, complete with flowers in the garden and family members at the door. Simon then asked each to pass their drawing onto the person next to them and on receiving someone else's drawing to make it as ugly as possible. Without much need for encouragement, the pretty drawings of houses and gardens were soon defaced with thick black scribbles, the family faces graffitied or mutilated, and some sheets of paper crumpled up entirely. The drawings were then returned to the original, somewhat upset, artists. Simon had demonstrated that creative expression goes to the heart of our sense of self, of feeling safe and of being at home. When we create something, we put a piece of ourselves into it. Making matters because it's a statement of expression and intent. Freedom of expression and participation in culture are perhaps the most meaningful human rights of all. Here are the rights to tell our own stories and to be all that we can be. Although qualified, not least by the balancing of others' rights, engaging in expression and cultural life is an enabler to other rights, including the right to education. Mark making seems to matter all the more if there are others to bear witness to it and to acknowledge that creative effort. I'd intended that my street conversations be a type of bearing witness to the realization of human rights. Culture, often revealed through our art and our making, is like a long continuous conversation. It creates the constructed space to say and hear uncomfortable things face to face. I learned this firsthand in in the courtroom when working as a legal intern in The Hague. The International Criminal Tribunals set up in the mid-1990s by the United Nations after the Bosnian and Rwandan genocides did not originally include provision for outreach services. Insufficient thought had been given as to how the legal process of analysing evidence could be communicated to victims and witnesses who were not legally trained. So highly traumatised people travel to another country often for the first time, to give testimony in an international tribunal and weren't always told how their personal accounts did or did not prove legal tests like command responsibility in humanitarian law. Things had gotten better by the time I was listening to very uncomfortable stories face-to-face in court. Large screens were assembled in the countries where atrocities had occurred to broadcast proceedings live from court. 
pictorial and dramatised summaries of legal process were also developed to explain to children how a courtroom functions or to overcome language barriers. The experience of learning about this inspired me to leave an early career in law in favour of outreach work and nurturing creative participation in myself and others. I wanted to explore how to make the law accessible for people it exists to serve. The people whose real life experiences shape case law precedent, not the lawyers and judges who speak to one another in Latin maxims. I'll stop there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you so much. That last line actually was the one that really stuck in my mind and that's why I went back to find that section when we were talking about which one would be best for you to read out because I think as a law student especially it just resonated with me so much um, and also in what being involved in the law clinic that's exactly what we try to do is to make the law more accessible and explain it to people our clients in ways that they can understand great work that you're you're doing there um and i wish i wish there was more of it thank you yeah I think it's interesting so, as well when you talk, Gemma, in that last sentence, and it is that last sentence, isn't it, Lucy, that we talked yeah. about for so long, yeah. about this idea that real-life experiences shaping case law precedent. I think that that's something that, especially as a, when I was a practicing solicitor, you very rarely think when you're a, a student about the people behind the cases. That's not what you're taught. You're taught actually most of the time that the facts aren't that important, that it's the principle. And that is an important legal skill to learn is how you distill cases down to the principles that then can be applied in other cases. But then as a practicing solicitor, often you, you are so consumed by the facts because they're real clients with real faces and, and lives. And you get that experience as well through the, the clinic, Lucy. Yeah. And I think that's an important thing for law students to, to think about is the real people who are Donahue and Stevenson and, you know, every every case that comes to court has real people at the heart of it. And I think that's, um, that's why that really stood out for us, wasn't it, Lucy? Yeah, definitely. That's something that the clinic we talk about a lot is about Lucy and our academic director, Claire McFadgen, about how you make law accessible and how you reach out to people and help them know what their rights are and how they mm. can access those rights that they have they maybe just don't know what they what they can do in those particular situations mm -hmm. our previous student director taylor was talking to us about how often she would encounter clients who simply didn't know that there was a remedy that there was something that could be done about their deposit going missing and their flat being damp and actually as lawyers you're in a really privileged position because you have the knowledge you know that there are legal solutions to these problems and you can it's it, as part of that privilege it's your duty to help people who maybe don't have access to that knowledge and make sure that they can take advantage to these rights that they they've they have um, by virtue mm -hmm. of well, on a really practical mm -hmm. level you know human rights act and the scotland act but also just by virtue of living in our society that is the way I definitely learnt the hard way with um, researching Constitution Street, this book, though um, initially I, I had some very naive questions for the people that I interviewed. Um, I must have come across as terribly self-righteous and dull because I, I was asking my neighbours, some of whom are, are good friends, um, about what rights would you like to see in a written constitution and and. and this sort of thing and, and 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 this looked at me like you know is, is this really what you want to talk about this this is the, the, they're passionate people who care a lot about the places in which they live but mm -hmm. going in there with um with with 
direct, quite reductionist questions about about rights um, and, and constitutional law uh, wasn't wasn't the best way to start a conversation. Um, so, and I think I touched on that at some point in the book. I explain yeah, yeah, how yeah. I learned from other more participatory processes in other countries um, about how to how to go about having better conversations. Yeah, I think was it Iceland that had the um, that's so interesting. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that, Gemma? The um, the process in Iceland. Yeah, gosh. Well, um, I mean, this is secondhand as I heard it from Katrina Odd's daughter, who um, was very involved um, in, in, the, in the drafting of a new Icelandic constitution. Um, and it's a much discussed example about how a, 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 a small population of an island could do something very participatory. And yeah, I, I, sadly, I don't think the the, the new constitution that came out of that process has has been formally adopted and politics has gotten in the way but it's it's very inspiring how the process mattered almost as much as as, as, mm-hmm. as the end result because they had this open national conversation in public ballot and so you got farmers and truck drivers and students playing their part in a constitutional convention that involved that involved lawyers, but was was very transparent and and, and civic in the true meaning of, mm-hmm. of of debate. Yeah, I think that's something that Lucy and I both talked about when we were talking about Constitution Street. Is the whole idea about putting the lived experiences of people who are living these rights at the heart of the process of whether it's drafting a constitution or just making those rights real. You have to actually think about the lived experiences of people and how they use those rights. And that's something that you do so perfectly in Constitution Street, even when you're talking about you know, Simon as an art therapist. That's such an excellent example of how freedom of expression matters to us. And I think that that really is something that's captured perfectly by the discussion that you have with your neighbours, is that perhaps the language of constitutions and rights can be a little bit alienating, but on a level of of your lived day-to-day it's something that everyone does actually identify with in some form or another yeah definitely when you say about um how you went to your neighbors and what you started off by asking them these just like questions about what they would like to see in the constitution and stuff i think it's really interesting that as lawyers that's what we should be doing is rather than as you say just asking them the questions that we would ask ourselves as lawyers listening to their stories and then interpreting that whether writers and lawyers are engaged in in listening yeah um, you know that's the key thing I think for, for, for me um, researching a book I've got to find common ground with people and, and we might have voted differently or hold radically different points of view yeah. from from the, the hyper local to the global but we will have something in common we will we will, yeah. we will have a friend or an interest or a memory something in common I suppose the difference with yourselves as as, as pr- professionals um, trying to help someone advance their case is, is not to get um, subjective in your emotional in- engagement but 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 to do some in the courtesy of of active listening and and that is that's that's bearing witness that's testimony which which is a form of protest in itself I think that's what the word testimony means I actually heard you speaking at the Law Society conference, Gemma, was um, the oh, first time I'd heard you speaking about Constitution Street. And that conference was really, it was a good conference. It, and the Law Society conference is always good. That session in particular was, I mean, evidently the book had such an impact on me. And hear you talking about that really made me, I was a bit weary of a lot of the Constitution 
discussions that we were having as lawyers, I think, or as a society, I think a lot of us grew quite weary of these conversations playing out again and again. And it was great to take it from a different place, to think about it fresh, which was not something I'd done, I mean, yeah, probably since 2016. That feeling of freshness and that there was something new that I could take away from it, particularly when everyone's so entrenched in their positions. You're, you're not in Constitution Street. You talk to a variety of people uh, and take a variety of opinions on board and there's that. I think, Lucy, you talked about empathy. That runs through the whole book. And you've, you've just said yourself, finding something in common that you have with people who have radically different opinions to you. Mm. And that taught me a lot um, about literature and, and empathy and how, as lawyers, you can take something fresh by not necessarily engaging with the texts that you always do. My degree was actually law with English literature at undergrad. And I think I'd lost connection with that quite a, a bit. Um, I'm a big reader, but I'm not sure that I would have said that that was something I incorporated in my practice at all. The Constitution changed that for me. It made me think again about how you engage with literature as a tool, as a legal professional, a legal academic, a law student. And me and Lucy have had a number of conversations about that, about how you can learn a lot from non-legal texts, non-traditional legal texts, about mm. about other people's lives and how you incorporate that into your own learning. Mm. Oh, that's really great to hear. Um, uh, we'll meet again in person properly sometime, I hope. Um, I didn't, I didn't um, get a chance to chat to you at that, that conference. Um, I remember Helena Kennedy um, being, being great value. You, 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 yeah. you, you talk that, she's really good at that. On, on, a, on having different points of view, um, I think it's really important to give ourselves permission to, to change our minds on, on things. Um, we have a culture where it's seen as a sign of weakness to change your view. Mm -hmm. And that's quite dangerous, I think, because we, we become entrenched and stuck in positions we can't get out of. Mm -hmm. um, we like our political leaders to be infallible. Mm -hmm. And so... So, yeah, I, you know, I've come to some views, including on national identity and on unwritten constitutions um, based on learning. But but the world is, is changing apace and it's important to 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 be re reactive, responsive, as, as we would do in, in any aspect of life. Yeah, I think as well, when you say about not changing our opinions is dangerous, you, I think that's been really shown by the recent wave of the Black Lives Matter movement is that's what I've seen. I mean, I know that social media, especially my social media, I'm sure is a bit of an echo chamber, but I have seen so many people expressing that they just, they didn't know about these things or they were misinformed or they've changed their opinion. And even just talking to my family and friends, it is, you know, people would say that they weren't racist, but they weren't actively anti-racist. And that's a really good example, I think, of when it's dangerous not to change your opinion. It's the power of listening again, isn't it? Yeah, That's what you're doing there by stepping back and saying, no, I, I don't know this. I need to better educate myself. And I think that's the beauty of literature um, as, as we're discussing here and, and fiction in particular, actually, that it, um, you can travel the world from, from the comfort of your own home. And, and let's face it, none of us are going very far at the moment in a pandemic. Yeah. Um, picking up a book allows you to, to imagine other, other lives and, and be in other places. So, mm -hmm. so it totally engages that empathy muscle. And here we are having a podcast conversation and, and for people who, who are kind enough to listen, they're they also engaged in, act, in, in, a, in a form of protest because, because that's what listening and, and, and reading as a form of listening does. 
even if it makes you daydream or think about something else because our attention spans are yeah, wrecked, yeah. <laughs> that's okay because yeah. you're because you're making time to do to do the listening. So maybe a bit of a change of topic, but something that we can't really ignore. The pandemic that we are all in at the moment, as Constitution Street is obviously all about rights-based constitution, talking to people, do you think there's anything that has come out of this pandemic that you would pinpoint as a something that has taught us the importance of putting human rights at the heart of the decision-making? Or, mm, Yeah, it's a really pertinent issue. I, I, I took time deliberately to stay in one, in one place to, to pay attention to change. Um, and now we're all doing that, aren't we? Mm. A crisis means everyone and everything is connected. Um, we're yeah. all staying local. But of course, how the crisis affects us all in terms of our experiences is not equal. So a human rights based approach would prioritise the needs of the most vulnerable and and marginalised and also mandate states to put the maximum available resources Mm -hmm. into progressing, particularly the right to health. I think it also, in a crisis, it also makes us ask sort of the big questions. Who, who am I with? Who am I, who am I not with? Who do I see and who am I not seeing day to day? Because human rights, like, like neighbours on a street, the ultimate story structure, beginning, middle and end, the, the human rights are, and neighbours are interdependent upon one another. We do need one another. We, we are universal we, we we all live somewhere and 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 the experience is indivisible you know it's not a subtle metaphor they are the, the, the they're for me they're, they're they're very linked um and and a human rights based approach to a pandemic also recognizes that today's uh, global challenges and, and those of tomorrow migration food insecurity and well climate the climate crisis and the spread of a, of a virus, these are things that don't respect national borders. So our responses have to be truly interconnected and interdependent as well. I don't think a written constitution would have, would have um, prevented coronavirus, no, yeah. but, but, it, but, it, but it would, in my view, it would change the way in which we respond if, if human rights were properly embedded in, into that constitution. I think it's been a hugely disproportionate impact on, on your generation yeah in, in, in particular and, and and we've we've had a prolonged and contract experience of, of chronic anxiety which um yeah. is yeah. you know in, in all of our different ways and how we consume news and how we worry about our loved ones um and um our particular in personal vulnerabilities to to um employment security and, and so forth so th- yeah that's that's really exhausting to be living in that constant state um we, we we really need to take a moment of pause um and collective reflection i just wanted to say thank you Gemma, because i think you just touched on it so briefly at the end there the idea of anxiety during lockdown i know that for a lot of our students this has been a really difficult mental health time for not just our students for our whole university community and one thing I would say um, to anyone who's listening to this is I have found I've taken great comfort in books I know you have as well Lucy um, would obviously highly recommend Constitution Street um, but it, also there's just an escapism in that kind of literature and I think we'd like to thank the Scottish Book Trust for for funding this podcast but also just for the wonderful work that they do in bringing books into our communities because when you are having difficult times 
books for me and and I know for many others are a huge source of comfort and um, they certainly have been during the pandemic and as you say Gemma I, I mean particularly just now when my concentration is absolutely shot my most favorite things to read are things that just take you into a complete world of unreality and you can daydream away but but it does get you out of your own head a little bit and I think that is the, the subtitle of Constitution Street, Finding Hope in an Age of Anxiety. And I hope for anyone who's listening to this that they can maybe take that message away. And um, as we're leading up to coming back term, starting back in October, another few months away, there is a lot of comfort to be had in, in books and, and reading. Good, yeah. It's not been a productive time for, for this writer, I can tell you, <laughs> to um, share um anxiety and uh, attention issues but reading is always there when we're ready for it it doesn't matter what type and I think you asked me um, if I had any books I would recommend to students yeah Yeah. far be it from me to to recommend specific titles I think books find us Mm -hmm. by and by and almost it really doesn't matter whether it's um, a magazine or um, the complete works of Shakespeare I think it's um, it's just that um, pure escapism and, 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 and seeing the world anew that's important. But um, given the chance to, to, to plug a few faves, I will. And they would include on nonfiction, I think Re- Rebecca Solnit's writing about activism is really inspiring. It's quite US centric, or however, um, but you could check out her work. Field Guide Getting Lost, Finding Hope in the Dark. For me, anything by Ali Smith, um, her seasonal quartet has obviously chronicled these anxious years. And Alif Shafak as well, I think, um, is a great one for combining human rights and literature. Um, they're all women. That's okay, though. We, yeah. <laughs> we're all women, so I don't need to apologize for that. Um, I was going to finish off by asking if you had any advice for law students in 2020. Uh, yeah, just uh, uh, about that, the thinking global, acting local stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I would just get stuck in to the causes that speak to your heart locally um, and apply the knowledge from, from the, the, the legal textbooks locally um, and stay humble, be nice to people. Um, I, think, um, I think kindness comes back to you. It is, it is all connected. Definitely. Thank you. That is a lovely place to end, I think. Um, Thank you so much for speaking to us. I've really enjoyed that. Pleasure. Thanks again to Gemma for joining us today. You can get Gemma's book for yourself on the 404 Inc. website and you can find Gemma on Twitter at Gemma Tweets. Thank you also to the Scottish Book Trust for funding this podcast. And finally, thank you for listening.